Uh, good morning, guys. How you doing? Good morning. Woo! Good Is it all a good Thanksgiving? Yes, sir. Yes? Who's excited for Christmas? Yeah. I love the Christmas season. This is the uh, first Sunday of Advent, which in the kind of church calendar or whatever, liturgical calendar you call it, is the four Sundays uh, leading up to Christmas. And usually our uh, preaching series are kind of dictated by the way that the semester plays out. Uh, we've never been able to do kind of a full Advent series before, but because this has been a weird year, we have all four weeks to start a fresh series uh, leading up into Christmas. So uh, that's what we're going to be kicking off today. I I've always loved this time of year. I love Christmas. Ever from the time I was a kid, I loved Christmas. I've always loved the lights and uh, the decorations. I'm putting all that stuff up at my house today. I think I have 50 nutcrackers that I'll be putting up. Uh, so yeah, I've, just, I've always been into that. And uh, Christmas, I mean, culturally is, of course, a huge holiday. And you think, what other holiday has its own season, right? Like, can you imagine having, like, Fourth of July season? or like Valentine's Day season. We don't have those things, right? But, but Christmas gets its whole season, and regardless of how much of a Scrooge you are, like everybody can agree that at the latest, Christmas season starts right after Thanksgiving. Some of you guys have been listening to Christmas music since Halloween. But um, the, the thing is, we're kind of into this season now where as a culture, even uh, as a culture, honestly, that in many ways doesn't honor the Lord, we kind of take pretty much a whole month out of the year uh, to do all these Christmassy things. Some of them have more of a Christian feel than others. Uh, but one thing that, that happens is the music. Okay, so there's a couple radio stations where they just exclusively play Christmas music. I think some of the normal ones even start playing it every now and then uh, during this time. <clears throat> and you hear this stuff everywhere that you go, right? Like, it's not like, oh, I just heard the Christmas songs at church that we play or something. It's like, no, you go to the mall, you go to the coffee shop, uh, they're, they're everywhere you go. You can't really get away from this. And uh, that's why I, I felt like as we're doing this Advent series, it'd be a good opportunity to actually preach through uh, some of these songs, the meanings that they have. So our uh, series is called Songs of the Season. And uh, even if you don't really like Christmas music, I hope that you'll be able to appreciate the message that's within a lot of these. And when I think about Christmas songs, uh, in some ways I think of them like, uh, presents that are wrapped underneath the tree, right? I don't know for you guys how early you put your, your presents out and wrap them there. But as a present is sitting there wrapped under the tree, you know there's something that's good inside of it. But you might just keep walking by it over and over and over again, but you never really get to experience the treasure that's in it until you take the time to actually unwrap it and start to use it. And so even though for many of us, we've been singing Christmas songs our entire lives, some of these songs you've probably heard a hundred times, maybe you even sang them mindlessly a hundred times, you may not have ever taken time to actually really meditate on what the song is saying. And maybe you've never actually taken the time to dive into the scripture and be like, hey, what, what is going on here? Like, where is this being drawn from? And so there's really three major reasons why I decided that this uh, Songs of the Season series would be something that's beneficial for our church. And, and the first is just that these songs are packed with stuff that's going to help you learn. So knowledge would be that, right? There's a lot of really, really good doctrine in these songs. And uh, sometimes I feel like the, the church doesn't do a good enough job of, uh, of learning doctrine. And really well-written songs, a lot of times the older ones, the hymns and stuff, which many of these are, uh, can help teach really good doctrine to you. And uh, here at H2O, we don't preach anything other than the Bible, okay? So I'm not going to be preaching these songs. 
Uh, the songs that we're going to be looking at are all songs that are rooted deeply in the scripture. And so really what we're going to be looking at is the scripture that the song is rooted in more so than actually expositing the song. Okay? <clears throat> um, the second reason I thought this would be good for us is worship. So good theology, good doctrine is not something actually that should be dry. It's something that should move our hearts to worship. That's actually the proper response of learning about the Lord. And when God has done wonderful things, it's actually been commonplace for his people throughout history to put his great deeds to song, to, to give him glory and to teach future generations about what he has done. You think about it, right? How many of you guys can say the alphabet without singing the song? I'm 31 years old, I still don't know if I can do it. I have to sing the song to, to be able to even say the alphabet. Right? There's so many things that, that you've learned well because it was put to song. And so you, you look at like the book of Psalms, for example, that the biblical hymn book. Uh, this is a great way for people to actually be able to learn of the wondrous deeds of what God has done. You'll see that this happens all the time. Exodus 15. This was uh, right after God had brought Israel out of Egypt. Uh, they were, had, had their backs up against the Red Sea. He split the Red Sea. And then he closed it in on the Egyptian army that was pursuing them. Guess what happens right after that? Moses breaks out into song. Exodus 15.1 starts by saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. And the song goes on and on about just this awesome stuff that God has done. He's praising God through music. Uh, the Psalms, as I said, this was kind of like the biblical hymn book. Uh, here's, they're, they're full of stuff like this. Psalm 89.1 is an example. I will sing of the graciousness of the Lord forever. To all generations, I will make your faithfulness known with my mouth. And how cool is it? How many generations are we here later actually still reading Psalm 89? Um, so the psalmist was effective actually in teaching of God's graciousness to future generations. So when we sing songs, we are declaring the great works of God and what he has done. And then finally, the, the last reason I think that this will be helpful is just preparation. And what I mean by that is really preparation for you to be able to take whatever situation you find yourself in to be able to preach the gospel. You actually see this happening a lot throughout the scriptures. Uh, that people will take something that's going on around them and they use it to preach the gospel. Uh, say Peter, for example, in Acts 2. He's in a situation, of course, that's crazy. There's these tongues of fire that come and people start speaking different languages. Well, what does he do? He uses that as an opportunity to be able to preach the gospel. All right? There's a, another passage we're going to look at here that, that shows the same thing. It's in Acts chapter 8, verses 26 through 31. It says, But an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Get ready and go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert road. So he got ready and went. And there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. And he had come to Jerusalem to worship. And he was returning and sitting in his chariot and was reading Isaiah the prophet. Then the spirit said to Philip, go up and join this chariot. Philip ran up and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and said, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, well, how could I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. And then from there, Philip ends up preaching the gospel to him through that passage in Isaiah that he was reading. Now, what did Philip do? First off, of course, he was sensitive to the Spirit. But what he did is he used something that was going on around him. The fact that the prophet Isaiah was being read. Matter of fact, the man reading it didn't even understand what he was reading. 
And it was more common in those days for people to kind of like be reading and just reading out loud. It'd be weird for us to see something like that today. But in those days, that, that wasn't uncommon to be reading and to actually be speaking it as you're going there. So here he is. He's in a context where uh, he's been exposed to the prophet Isaiah. He's reading the prophet Isaiah, but he doesn't really understand it. And so Philip is in a spot where he gets to come along and say, hey, do you understand what, what you're reading? No. You want me to tell you? And he, he preaches the gospel to him, and the guy gets saved, and he's baptized on the side of the road. Now, for us, I think that we can find ourselves in this Christmas season in a similar spot to where Philip found himself with the Ethiopian eunuch. As I said, these Christmas songs are playing everywhere. If you guys are hanging out with friends that don't know Jesus, and you're in a spot where a Christmas song starts to play, you might have the same kind of opportunity to say, hey, have you ever thought about like, what this song is about? Do you, do you know? Do you want me to explain it to you? And you get the opportunity to speak about the truth that's hidden in this song right here. So, with that being said, you guys ready to learn what song we're going to look at this morning? Oh, yes. Okay, okay cool. Uh, well, we'll pray, and then I'll like, tell you which one it is. <clears throat> God, we love you, and I thank you so much for who you are. Uh, I thank you that you are a good God that is worth singing praises to. Um, and, and Lord, I, I know that so often um, we just get used to singing in church. Uh, we get used to uh, beautiful hymns being played all around us everywhere we go. But Lord, we never really take time to actually think about what we're doing. And so God, even as a church, I pray that uh, when we sing to you here on Sunday mornings, it wouldn't be something that we do just because this is part of church. Uh, but that we would be thinking about the glories that we're actually proclaiming. Lord, that our hearts would be stirred to worship in you. And, and God, as we uh, are out in society throughout this next month, as Christmas songs are playing all around us, I pray that uh, you would use those songs to minister to us, Lord, and to minister to others. Tell us to be people that see the truth that's being proclaimed in this and to rejoice over it. So God, I pray that you'd be with us this morning as we dive into your scripture. Guide us, Lord. Show us more of who you are. And lead us to worship. We love you. We pray this in your son's awesome name. Amen. Alright, so the song that we're going to be looking at this morning is O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And uh, the reason I wanted to start the series off with this song is because, first off, it's the oldest song that we're going to look at. Uh, this song is over a thousand years old. It's just kind of cool in itself. I know how many songs are still being sang. Uh, that are, are over, over a thousand years old. We actually don't know for sure who the author is. Uh, most people think it was written by some monks in either the 8th or 9th centuries. It was originally written in Latin, and then it was translated into English in the 1800s. Uh, but uh, for some reason, I think there's something kind of cool about just singing this song that we've had so many Christian ancestors that have gone before us in the faith singing the same kind of thing. But not only is this a really, really old song, but it also has the earliest mindset of any of the songs that we'll look at. And here's what I mean by that. Most of the time when we sing Christmas songs, we are uh, reflecting back on what happened at Christmas. Okay, so think about Silent Night, right? Like we're singing about the night of Jesus' birth, or a holy night, or, or almost all of them, Heart of the Herald Angels Sing. They're all pretty much focusing in on this event that has happened, that we call Christmas, the coming of Christ, and celebrating that. Well, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel is actually a little bit different. It kind of comes from almost an Old Testament mindset. You see, it's not so much celebrating something that already happened, but the mindset of the singer is one that's still waiting on Emmanuel to come. So it's kind of like an Old Testament person that knows, hey, God has promised that there's this Emmanuel uh, child that is going to come. He hasn't come yet, but we're waiting on him. O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, we desire you to come. 
So it's written in anticipation rather than in, inflection, uh, in reflection. Uh, but yet it's celebratory because it's anticipatory in faith. And so what I mean is, even though Emmanuel hasn't come yet from the perspective of this song, you'll notice that the verse often ends with, Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. And so it's still joyful even though Emmanuel hasn't come yet because of the faith of the one that is writing it and singing it. And so the song really has more of the mindset of somebody like uh, Simeon or Anna. And we meet both of these characters in Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, 25 introduces us to Simeon. It says, And there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, looking forward to the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. This is a guy that uh, Mary and Joseph would meet with baby Jesus when they went to bring him to the temple. Uh, That was something you would do with your newborn uh, baby. Your firstborn, you actually had to make a sacrifice, which is remembering back to the way that God spared all the firstborn uh, back when he brought them out of of Egypt. And so there's this guy, Simeon, who's righteous and devout. The Spirit is upon him, and he is looking for what? The consolation of Israel. What does that mean? He is expecting God to do something to save Israel from the situation that they are in, in exile. And they're not technically in exile physically, okay? They are back in their land. But the kind of prosperity that was promised by the Old Testament prophets has not come yet. And they understand there's something more that still needs to happen. And so this guy Simeon is here waiting on this. And the Spirit had revealed to him that he was going to get to see this, this child. And sure enough, he gets to see Jesus and he proclaims and prophesies over Jesus about who he is. And then right after that, we're introduced to this woman named Anna. And she also gets to meet Jesus. This is another devout woman. And this is what it says about her in Luke 2, uh, 38. And at that very moment, she came up and began giving thanks to God and continued to speak about him to all those who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. Okay? So people like Simeon, people like Anna, these are the kind of people that would sing a song like, Will Come, Will Come, Emmanuel. Now, the song wasn't written. Right yet, right? Eighth and ninth century. I'm talking the mindset. This is the kind of mindset that we're putting ourselves in when we sing this song. Now, let's, let's look at the lyrics. This song has seven verses. I do not have time to walk through seven <laughs> verses with you. Uh, hopefully, I'll get you out of here in an hour trying to go through one verse, all right? Uh, so, I, I'm not, not going to be able to do that. We're just going to look at the first verse, the one that you're probably most familiar with, and you'll have to look at the rest of them on your own if you desire to do that. But let's look at this first verse here. It says, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. Okay, so we see here, O come, O come, it starts with this plea of God, come be with us. Like, you're not here right now, but we need you to be here. And as a matter of fact, this name, Emmanuel, is loaded with meaning. The name literally means God is with us. So, O come, O come, God be with us, is essentially what what you're praying as you sing this. But yet, it's not just the idea of God being with us, but God dwelling with us in the person of Emmanuel, the child of Emmanuel. Now, this name is actually only found three times in Scripture. And uh, it's only one, two of those are in the Old Testament, one of them is in the New Testament. So the New Testament one is clearly connected to the birth of Christ. I'm going to read for you where Matthew does that in his Gospel. Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 23. Now the birth of Jesus the Messiah was as follows. 
When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be pregnant by the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, since he was a righteous man and did not want to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had thought this over, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you shall name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place so that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet would be fulfilled. Behold, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. Okay, so by the way, sometimes you're going to see Emmanuel with an E, sometimes you're going to see with an I. It's Hebrew, so you're just translating the English. That happens when you're trying to transliterate stuff, so don't be freaked out by that. Uh, but this is probably the most familiar passage we have, because most of us are more familiar with the New Testament than the Old Testament. But you'll notice that all Matthew is actually doing is quoting the Old Testament here. So if we really want to understand the Emmanuel thing, what we should do is go back to the, what he is quoting. I told you it's used two other times, both of which are in Isaiah. One is in Isaiah 7, one is in Isaiah 8. So it's really around the same thing. The, the specific thing that he is uh, quoting comes from Isaiah chapter 7. Now, a little bit about Isaiah. Isaiah was a prophet that ministered 700 years before this time. Okay, 700 years. That's a long time. Uh, matter of fact, it is, this prophecy likely happened in 734 BC. Give you an idea of that. That's about three times as long as the United States has existed. Okay, 734. So there's a long way back. And Matthew is reminding his readers, hey, remember Isaiah that wrote this thing way back here? We're finally seeing this 734 years later. Well, 730 years, actually, come into being. All right? Now, I wrote a 20-plus page paper on this for seminary, so I'm not going to be able to get into all the technicality that I did. If you want that, I can send it to you. You can read it. I can make a more thorough argument there. But I'm preaching. I'm not in a seminary class right now, so I'll try not to be too dry. Uh, but I do want you guys to understand um, what's going on here in Isaiah 7, because this is really a fascinating passage. And it's been a very controversial passage amongst a lot of people as well. Um, so just to, to get you know what's going on here. So 734 BC, Isaiah was a prophet, and he was sent to uh, speak to the king of Judah. And his name was Ahaz. Now, uh, Judah and Israel were God's people, but they had split about 200 years earlier into two entirely separate kingdoms. Judah was the southern tribes. There were 12 tribes of Israel, the two southern ones. Judah and Benjamin became their own nation. Judah was much bigger, so we just call it Judah. And then the ten northern tribes split off as well. And that's what we would call Israel, or sometimes you'll see it referred to as Ephraim, because Ephraim was the largest of those ten tribes that were up there. Okay? Uh, they split off they, they, about 200 years ago, and things have not been good between them. Both have been unfaithful to the Lord, Israel even more so than Judah, but neither one has done a good job of following the Lord. And uh, they've got some bad blood. I hope that you guys all had good uh, Thanksgiving times. I know sometimes it's a contentious time. Well, Judah and Israel had their family problems as well, and sometimes would even go to war with each other. So when we come here on 734 BC, we're actually on the doorstep of war between Israel and Judah. So let me uh, read for you a little bit from Isaiah chapter 7 here. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out now to meet Ahaz, you and your son Sheer Jeshu, 
at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the road to the fuller's field, and say to him, Take care and be calm. Have no fear and do not be faint-hearted because of these two stumps of smoldering logs on account of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram and the son of Ramalia. Because Aram with Ephraim and the son of Ramalia has planned evil against you, saying, Let's go up against Judah and terrorize it and take it for ourselves by assault and set up the son of Tabil as king in the midst of it. This is what the Lord God says. It shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass. For the head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. Now, within another sixty-five years, Ephraim will be broken to pieces, so that it is no longer a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. If you will not believe, you certainly shall not last. All right, let's stop right there. So, as I said, we're on the doorstep of war. Ahaz is king of Judah. And uh, their old family, Israel, is coming to fight against them along with this country called Aram. And Aram is what modern-day Syria is, all right? So these two guys have partnered up, and they are getting ready to attack Judah. Now, Judah does not want to get attacked by them. Obviously, they're, they're kind of fearful that someone is coming to attack. And God is, is saying, hey, Ahaz, don't worry about these guys. They're, they're smoldering logs. They have no power behind them. Uh, as a matter of fact, the, the command that is given to Ahaz could be translated as, be careful to do nothing. All right? S stop worrying. Don't go and make military alliances. You see, the whole reason why Aram and Israel were trying to fight Judah, what did they want to do? They didn't want to conquer it. They said, let us set up the son of Tabil as king. Well, what are they trying to do there? Assyria was the, the superpower in the region at that time. And Aram and Israel are saying, we need to create a military alliance to protect ourselves against this superpower of Syria. And Judah says, that we don't want any part of that. Okay, they're not interested in joining this. And so they're like, okay, well, Ahaz, if you don't want to join this alliance, then we'll get rid of you and we'll set up some other guy that will join our alliance. All right? Now, Ahaz has, finds himself in a spot here where he knows he doesn't want to partner up with Israel and with Aram. But God doesn't want him to partner up with Assyria either. He actually tells him, just sit here and do nothing. Be calm. I'm going to take care of you. Ahaz has a decision to make. Is he going to trust that God is actually going to, to protect Judah? Or is he going to scramble and try and do his own thing here? Because God warns him that if you don't believe, you certainly shall not last. Now, unfortunately, Ahaz was a really unfaithful king. Uh, you can read about this guy in 2 Kings chapter 16. It says that he was not faithful to the Lord. And he does not follow the command that God gave him. Instead, you can see this in 2 Kings 16. You'll have to look it up on your own. Uh, but he goes and makes a military alliance with Assyria. And essentially what happens is a little small potatoes kingdom like Judah would become uh, someone that pays tribute to this powerful saying. Hey, hey, we'll pay you a bunch of money so that you don't come and attack us. And that's essentially what Judah becomes to Assyria. Now, we haven't gotten to Emmanuel yet. Right? I told you we want to go back to Isaiah 7, 8 to Emmanuel. That's coming up. So let's, let's read again here. Verses 10 through 17. Then the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying, Ask for a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Make it deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I put the Lord to the test. Then he said, Listen now, house of David. Is it too trivial a thing for you to try the patience of men, that you will try the patience of my God as well? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, 
The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and she will name him Emmanuel. He will eat curds and honey at the time he knows, and at the time he knows enough to refuse evil and choose good. For before before the boy knows enough to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose two kings you dread will be abandoned. The Lord will bring on you, on your people, and on your father's house, such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim separated from Judah, the days of the king of Assyria. Okay, so now we've gotten to Emmanuel. We have to say, what in the world is going on? How is this being connected to Jesus 730 years later? This seems like this is some sort of sign that's supposed to be given to Ahaz, who lives seven centuries earlier, and he's trying to figure out if he needs to do anything uh, to, to stop this invasion that's coming. And now you're telling me that somehow that this Emmanuel prophecy is about Jesus, right? So it's, sometimes you'll actually see skeptics. Most people don't dive this deep, but maybe if you guys get into internet discussions or something, you'll see them say, oh, there's no way Matthew had to be wrong in attributing this sign to Jesus because clearly this was a sign for Ahaz. This had to be something for him in his time. Well, we'll get into that. There's, there's actually really cool what's going on here. Um, there's a few important things that we need to take note of to understand this prophecy. First thing is that this oracle that we just read is separate from the first one. That's why I even broke them up in the way that I read to you, right? So Isaiah goes out and he tells him the first thing. What's the first thing that the Lord has to, t- to say that he has? That you need to be careful to do nothing. Be calm. These guys aren't going to, they're not going to hurt you. And that if you don't believe, you certainly will not last. That's the end of verse 9. How does verse 10 begin? Well, verse 10 begins by saying, Then the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying... Okay, now when you're reading the prophets, one of the biggest challenges we have is actually finding out where to separate what we call oracles, different messages that the Lord has given. So when we're reading, it's literally verse 9 to verse 10. We look at it and say it's all one message. But the text seems to be telling us, no, these are two separate messages. The first message was, be calm, don't do anything. Then the Lord spoke again. This is a separate message. So we don't know how much time elapsed between these. It could have been a few seconds, but it was still a different thing. Could have been weeks. We don't know. Uh, The Lord knows whether or not Ahaz believed what was told him, though. Now, what, what God does in this second oracle is he says to Ahaz, hey, ask for a sign. Ask for anything you want. It can be as high as the heavens, it can be low as Sheol. And what does Ahaz say? I'm no, 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 I'm not, I'm not going to test the Lord. Okay? Now this is kind of like a feigned righteousness thing, right? We, Ahaz is not a righteous king. We, we see that in 2 Kings, clearly. He doesn't care about the Lord. He already has his own plans, and he's going to do those no matter what. So he's not even going to ask the Lord for a sign, not because uh, he thinks he's honoring God there, but because he's stuck on doing his own thing regardless. So we have to ask in this situation... When God says, all right, ask for a sign, Ahaz says no, he says, okay, guess what? The Lord is going to give you a sign. What is it that God is communicating? What is the point of this sign? Now, there's two major reasons for why uh, someone might be given a sign. The first reason might be to literally inspire or create belief so that you, it, it moves you to do a certain thing. Uh, uh, an example of this would be in Exodus chapter 4. This is uh, when God was telling Moses to go to Israel and to, that he was going to lead them out of, of uh, slavery in Egypt. Moses is asking, hey, what if they don't listen to me? So listen to this, Exodus 4, 1 through 5. Then Moses said, what if they will not believe me or listen to what I say? For they may say, the Lord has not appeared to you. The Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? And he said, a staff. And he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground and it turned into a serpent. And Moses fled from it. 
But the Lord said to Moses, reach out with your hand and grasp it by its tail. So he reached out with his hand and caught it, and it turned into a staff in his hand. So that they may believe that the Lord, the God of our fathers, of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Alright, so this is a sign. They say, hey, Moses, go, go and tell the people that you're going to lead them out of slavery. And what do they say? No, 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 I, we don't believe you. God hasn't said that to you. You're crazy. So this is what I want you to do. Take your staff, throw it on the ground, it'll become a snake. Alright, what is that? That is a sign that would create belief in you, right? Like, if you told me something, I was like, no, nah, you're full of it. And then all of a sudden you like threw a staff on the ground and turned into a snake, I would probably be more willing to receive whatever message it had that you, that you said, okay? So that's usually what we think of as a sign. However, there could be a different purpose of a sign as well. And, that, and this other purpose could be to reward, is a reward for belief that confirms a promise that God has already given, okay? And there's actually, we can go right back to Exodus and see a, the word sign used this way. Look at this in Exodus 3.12. This is God speaking to Moses at the burning bush. And he said, Assuredly, I will be with you, and this shall be a sign to you, that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God at this mountain. Okay? Now notice what's going on there. The people have already gone out in faith. So what is this sign? This sign is not created to inspire or create faith. They've already had to exercise it in going out of Egypt. This sign is rather something that's there to tell them, hey, you're on the right track. This shows that I really am the one that brought you out. I did all these things, and when you get here to this mountain, it's proof to let you know, yes, this is me that's been doing all this work. So here a sign is more of a, a confirmation of something important rather than it is an impetus to do something. You tracking with me on this? All right. It's important for us to understand that because if the Emmanuel child is the first kind of sign, that's supposed to inspire something, then, then yes, the skeptics are right. Emmanuel has to be applied in Ahaz's time, right? Because Ahaz has to be inspired to do something. But if the Emmanuel child is the second kind of sign, then it doesn't have to be in Ahaz's time. Matter of fact, the sign for, for Moses and Israel, that, that came after the acts that God was telling them to go and do. So if, even if the fulfillment of this wasn't to come until 730 years later, that's okay. Because it's a sign that's communicating something else about what God is doing. Alright? Now, by the way, it's, it's interesting to notice, how does God address Ahaz? He doesn't even address him by name when he gives the sign. He says, listen, O house of David. Okay? He's identifying Ahaz by his uh, dynasty that he's from. The house of David. Uh, God's greatest king. Okay? So, this sign is, is really for the house of David more so than Ahaz himself. Now, yes, Ahaz is part of that lineage. He is part of the house of David. But ultimately, the sign is given to the house of David. Now, there's a third thing that we need to notice about this prophecy. There's both good and bad that's in it, right? There's some good stuff. This idea that there's this amazing thing that a virgin is going to conceive and have a child. It's going to be called Emmanuel. It means God with us. That's great. But there's also some bad stuff in it, right? We see, he says, a time is coming that's unlike any that has come since the day that Ephraim and Judah split apart. Now, the splitting of Ephraim and Judah, this wasn't a church plan, okay? This wasn't a joyous, we're sending you off and splitting in joy. This was a, no, we're tearing apart. This is a bad thing. Uh, this is a divorce that's going on here. This is the worst thing that they can remember happening to their nation, is this split, okay? It would be like if the Civil War, had, if the North had lost it, and your nation was split apart, all right? 
Now, this, and it says that the days are coming for the king of Assyria. Nobody wants the king of Assyria to come, all right? That, that is, Assyrians were, were some nasty enemies that would do horrible things to the people that they conquered. And they were ruthless. And so you look at this prophecy. This is not some prophecy of hope that, oh, yes, the days of the king of Assyria are coming. No, no, he's telling us something bad is going to happen. And that shouldn't surprise us, right? Because how did the first oracle end? If you do not believe, you surely will not last. Okay? So we, we need to understand that this is very important for us to look at this context. Um, the passage, actually, if we continue to read on, it talks about how difficult things are going to become uh, in that day when the king of Assyria starts to come. Now, Assyria conquered Israel in 722 BC. So that was about 12 years after this prophecy was given. They would not end up conquering Judah. They would ravage a lot of Judah's land, but they didn't end up conquering them. However, uh, in 586 BC, Babylon, who conquered Assyria, would then go and conquer Judah. And so ultimately, both of these nations would end up going into exile. Now, there's more I'd love to get into about this. I don't have, especially verses 15 and 16, I don't have time for it, and it's probably going to bore some of you. But if you want to read my paper, like I said, you can, I can send it to you, and uh, I think the prophecy will make a little bit more sense for you there as well. But... The, the whole point of Emmanuel. So what is going on here? Why is this Emmanuel child spoken of in this context? Because God is telling him that the king of Assyria is coming. He's saying there's days that are coming that are so bad, we haven't seen anything like it since the time that you guys split. Well, I believe that the sign of Emmanuel, the one that's born of a virgin, is a sign of hope for God's people that he is still with them, even in the midst of their difficulty. Right? They, what they were about to enter into was a really bad half millennium, okay? As these exiles started to happen, they never really fully came out of it. And you see is that uh, the, the next lines of the song, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel, who mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. Now there's this idea of being in exile. I, I, as I said, they, they, both of these nations went into exile Israel went in 722. They essentially lost all of their, their ethnic identity as well. They got assimilated in. The people that we call Samaritans, we've seen the Bible, those are, most scholars think, the remnants of, of the northern tribes that got mixed in. Samaria was actually the capital of the northern Israel, of, of Ephraim. Now, Judah would later be defeated by Babylon in 586, but Babylon would be defeated by Persia, and Persia would let them come back into their land. That's what the Edict of Cyrus. If you were with us over the summer, when we preached through Ezra and Nehemiah, that's what we were looking at. We call that series Return and Rebuild. We saw this is them coming back out of exile to rebuild the Promised Land. However, I would argue that um, even as we read Ezra and Nehemiah, as we see the way that the Hebrew Old Testament is compiled, you can make an argument that they never really came out of exile. Like, right, they physically came out of exile, but if you were with us over the summer and you read those th things, even as they rebuilt the temple, even as they tried to reestablish the law, what happened? The exact same wickedness was still there. The people were still really unfaithful to the Lord. There's crying over what's going on. Uh, and ultimately, if you look at the way the Hebrew Old Testament is, is uh, organized, and I preached on this in the last sermon of that series, you can go back and listen to it if you want to, the Hebrew Old Testament, many of the compilations of it, actually end with 2 Chronicles. Now, 2 Chronicles happens chronologically before Ezra and Nehemiah. But why is it that they would end with 2 Chronicles? 2 Chronicles ends with Israel in exile, and getting right up to the Edict of Cyrus, telling them to go up. 
And so what a lot of biblical scholars think is going on there is that they're essentially saying, hey, we haven't fully and truly come out of exile yet. And so even though they're physically in the land, they haven't actually come into the true promised land that God has for them and really building the kingdom that he desires. And you'll see, even as they came back physically, really, uh, Judah was just a, a puppet under the hand of one large power after another. And by the time of Jesus, what do we see? They're puppets under Rome. Right? Matter of fact, why were Mary and Joseph going to Bethlehem in the first place? Because Rome was forcing them to. And so, what we see here is that Emmanuel is going to be a very important sign. After they've been in exile for so long, after they've been longing for the promises of God for so long, it would be easy to say, is God really still with us? Does he really still care about his people? And there's going to be this sign that comes where one is born of a virgin that promises, yes, God is with us. Now, this is why uh, I love the way that this song ends, the first verse. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. This is a great picture of faith. Okay? Uh, Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Now faith is the certainty of things hoped for, a proof of things not seen. I love the fact that here in this song we're being told, Rejoice, rejoice. But it's not Emmanuel has come to thee. Now we can sing that, right? We know Emmanuel has come to thee. But from the perspective of this song, they're telling you, Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. You see, they understand he hasn't come yet, but we are so sure that it's going to happen, that we are going to rejoice as though it already has. Right? And that's what Hebrews 11.1 is telling us, that what faith actually is. It's the certainty of things hoped for. And so even if you're sitting there in exile, you're able to rejoice like you're not in exile, because you know without doubt that God is going to deliver you from it. So, as I was saying, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel is written from the perspective of kind of an Old Testament person. Waiting on Jesus to come. But here we are. We're New Testament Christians. Jesus has come. So great. Beautiful song. I'm glad we looked through all that. What's the point of us singing something like this today? That's not the situation that we're in. Well, I actually think that there's a lot of contemporary application for us. And I think that in, in some ways we're not so different from the Old Testament saints. Now, in a lot of ways we are, right? Like we're new covenant people. Uh, we relate to God through, uh, we, we were welcomed in this family through the blood of Christ. Uh, when Jesus said they instituted this new covenant. All these kind of great things. There's a lot that's different. However, just as they were waiting on his first coming, we are people that sit here waiting on his second coming. You see, just like Simeon and Anna they, they knew the scriptures and they were waiting for God to come and do something more than what he had already done. They knew that there was more promised. And they waited for that eagerly. Well, guess what? As Christians, we should be doing the same kind of thing. And it's not that God hasn't already brought a lot of great stuff. He has. There's so much we can currently rejoice over. But when we look at the scriptures, we see there's so much more that's still yet to come. And so just like they can sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel, we can sing the same kind of thing. Waiting on his second coming. You see, as a matter of fact, this is probably something that the 21st century American church does not emphasize enough. That Jesus is coming again. You look, this stuff is all throughout the scripture. Jesus talked about it. Look at this. John 14, 1-3. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If that were not so, I would have told you. 
because I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I am coming again and will take you to myself, so that where I am, there you also will be. So Jesus hasn't even left you. He said, hey, don't worry, guys. I'm going to prepare a place. I am coming again to get you. The angels promised that he would come again. Look at this in Acts 1, 9 through 11. This is at the ascension. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up, this is Jesus, while they were watching, and a cloud took him up out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, <clears throat> then behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. And they said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand there looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. So even at the ascension, we're thinking about the return. The early church lived in hope and expectation for him to come. <clears throat> you see this throughout lots of scriptures, but I feel like the best one I can show you is Revelation 22.20. We're right here at the end of the, uh, end of the New Testament, end of the Bible. He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. This is the life of a New Testament Christian. Is that we should be people that are also singing, O come, O come, Emmanuel. You know, in the next line of the song where it says, and, and ransom captive Israel who mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appears. You know, there's a lot that I feel like we can relate to in that as well. Jesus has already paid our ransom. Everything that was needed to forgive us of sin was done on the cross. Yet, in some ways, doesn't it still feel like we're exiles here? Like, we get to live in this kingdom of already, but not yet. God's kingdom has already come in power. We already have His Spirit. He dwells within us. He's empowered us to do so many things. Yet, we still live in the flesh too. Right? And we, we walk by faith, not by sight. We walk by the Spirit, not by the flesh. But the reality is we understand the broken world that we live in and the temptation that it has. And so we live, in many ways, as exiles in this world. Look at Hebrews 11, 13-16. This is in the Hall of Faith. I, I love this description here. Talking about faithful uh, people that have worshipped the Lord. <clears throat> All these died in faith, without receiving the promises, but having seen and welcomed them from a distance, and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country which they left, they would have had opportunity return, to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Right? This is talking about our ancestors in the faith, Old Testament saints, but, but people that uh, believed in the promises of God. And that is, it says here, they didn't even receive these promises, but they were looking for something better. And because they trusted in the promises of God, they lived as exiles in this earth, because they were seeking a better country. The fact that they were exiles made them understand that they needed to live differently. And, and they needed to make sacrifices for their faith. And we need to follow in their example. The Apostle Paul also wants us to realize that just like them, this world is not our home. Listen to what he wrote in Philippians 3, 17-20. Brothers and sisters, join in following my example. And observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk of whom I often told you, and now tell you even as I weep, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is their shame who have their minds on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
New Testament. Here it is. We eagerly await our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, to come and ransom us that are captives here living in a world that's not our home. It's okay to feel a little homesick. We, we actually should feel a little bit homesick. The creation itself is waiting with groaning for its redemption, Romans 8 tells us. And so we look forward to the returning of our King, of our Messiah. But just like they could know for sure that it was going to happen, and rejoice in their time, saying, rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel, we can have the same kind of faith. We can sing that exact same thing. Our response should be the same as the people that were waiting on him the first time. Knowing that, yes, God's kingdom has come, but not yet in its fullness, but one day it will. And because of that, we are going to be people that rejoice right now, that live in constant joy. Because even though our world is full of sickness and pain and suffering and death, we know it's not always going to stay that way. Emmanuel is coming back to get us. And so, band, you guys can come back up here. But as we've seen, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel is a, is a song that's really looking, uh, in many ways, both backwards and forwards. Right? Like, as we sing all these songs at Christmas time, we're looking backwards and we're remembering this incredible story of, of what God has done in, in bringing, uh, coming in the flesh so that he would save us. But at the same time, it's looking forward. So come, Emmanuel. And this whole Advent series is actually, that's what Advent is about. The Christmas season is actually something that should be both looking backwards and forwards. It's not just looking back at the birth of Christ, but it's also looking forward to the time that he will come again. Because we live as people in between the first and second coming. And so we are, uh, we're going to sing this song here, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And I hope that as I preach through this, it will give you a new appreciation for the depth of what we're singing. And that we won't just kind of sing it mindlessly. I know you probably sang it a hundred times at least. Um, but that, that, that you would have that same longing that, that was, we were told at the end of Revelation, come Lord Jesus. And as a matter of fact, uh, before we even start to sing, we're going to do a practice that Jesus gave us that is actually about looking both backwards and forwards. Just like this Advent series. You can go ahead and start passing those out. Uh, we're going to be taking communion together. And I want to read this uh, for you from Jesus. When, when Jesus ins instituted this practice of communion at the Last Supper, he said this. Now while they were eating, Jesus took some bread. And after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is being poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it with you new in my Father's kingdom. All right, so what are we doing when we're practicing communion here? In one sense, we're doing this in remembrance of him. We're remembering the fact that on the cross, Jesus' body was broken and his blood was poured out to start the new covenant. To be something that forgives us of our sins. And that is the, the biggest thing that we celebrate, right? That we were once far from God, our sins separated us from him. But because he loves us, he came, he took on flesh, he died the death that we deserve for the penalty of our sins, and he rose again. And so when we take the, the communion, we, we eat the bread, we remember his broken body, and we drink the, the wine and the juice, we remember his blood poured out. 
But look at what Jesus says here. In verse 29, he says, But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it with you new in my Father's kingdom. You see, a lot of the time I think we leave that part out of that when we do this, we shouldn't just remember what was done before, but we should also look forward to the day that we get to drink wine with Jesus in his Father's kingdom. In our Father's kingdom. How cool is that, right? So let's... Uh, I'm going to walk you guys through this since we all have them together and we can't do it the way we usually do. But you can go ahead and uh, peel that little top layer off. And we can all eat the little wafer and remember the, the body of Christ that's broken for you. And you can remove the for the juice then. And as you drink this, let it be something that reminds you of the blood of Christ that was poured for, out for you and that you look forward to the day you're going to drink wine with Jesus in our Father's kingdom. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, we love you and we are so thankful that you love us. We are thankful for you, Emmanuel, God with us, that you came and took on flesh. That you were born of a virgin. That you lived a sinless life. God, we thank you for the fact that uh, you died for us. Jesus, we thank you that you died on the cross so that we could be forgiven. Lord, we know we need it. So God, we thank you that, that you have come, and we also thank you that you will come again. We thank you that you are with us right now, even as, as your spirit uh, dwells within us, Lord. But we look forward to the day that you come in fullness and totally restore your creation. We love you, Lord. You're worthy of all of our praise. And so we pray along with John and those that have read Revelation throughout the millennium. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.